we know almost nothing about the early writers of the scriptures um, other than the fruit of their lives as we see in their writing. If we were to see into their everyday lives, uh, the talk of the town, the gossip of the day, I wonder what we would find. Joseph Smith has certainly uh, had much said about him, and even if every lie told about him was true, which I don't believe for a minute, but if they were true, I would ask, do we hold other writers of the Scripture to the same standard? We're not here to defend him, but to examine the fruit of his life and the product, the Book of Mormon. Many lies told about this book today are just plain not true. We see many evidences that point to the fact that indeed this book is true, and most importantly, we would say the fruit is good. The product is amazing and a true work of God. Join us today as we look at more evidences of God's message to us as contained in the Book of Mormon, uh, as well as evidences outside of the book that also point to its validity. Most importantly, the words contained therein are truth. Ancient records of people who had left Israel and who had come into the Americas and written a testimony of Jesus Christ. And this then became the basis of the Book of Mormon, which is the foundational scriptural text for the Mormon Church today, both in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as well as various other Mormon break-off fundamentalist groups that exist today. And today we're going to be looking at some issues with the Book of Mormon and some problematic things, which is why we can doubt that these things are indeed from God. In fact, not only can we doubt that they are from God, but we can know for sure uh, that what Joseph Smith has given us in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, as well as the Pearl of Great Price, are not revealed from God. They are not ancient documents. They are documents that were created by Joseph Smith. The first problem with the Book of Mormon is that it describes various ancient civilizations that lived in the Americas, and these civilizations simply do not exist. If we're looking at archaeological evidence for the Bible or other ancient texts, we have the civilizations, we have various pieces of archaeological evidence, and when it comes to the Book of Mormon, it's not just that we don't have archaeological evidence for everything that happened in the Book of Mormon. We can't even spot where the civilizations are at all. Even among Mormons themselves, there's no agreement as to where the events in the Book of Mormon took place. Uh, but this, this book describes rather advanced civilizations. They've got chariots, they have swords, uh, they have a pretty complicated writing system. They have a language known as Reformed Egyptian, and it's simply that the cultures simply don't exist. We've never found any evidence that these cultures exist in any way whatsoever. And if there really were these hundreds of thousands of people, you think that we would find some kind of record of them somewhere if they were here somewhere in the Americas. And some people argue that uh, it was in Central America, Mesoamerica, but we found no connection with the Book of Mormon peoples and cultures uh, as much as we've looked at the Aztec and the Mayan cultures and various other cultures in that area of the world. And we certainly haven't found any connections between the Book of Mormon peoples and the Native Americans in this nation as we've examined. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation Corey, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you, Mike? I am well. 
We started out just uh, playing a YouTube video. It's so fun to go onto YouTube and to just type in Book of Mormon and watch whatever comes up because <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. And so we we uh, we're kind of doing a part two. We talked uh, last time about mercy and justice. Corey did such a great job of bringing out some of the Hebrew poetry and the ways that they used words. And then we talked about the uh, Book of Mormon and where mercy and justice is found in the Book of Mormon. Corey, what did you think about that little uh, clip there at the beginning of uh, today's episode? Uh, boy, you really something? informative. Oh, wasn't know? it? I, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm. I'm glad we we know this now. I, you know, it's kind of funny. I I don't know who this uh, person is, but I wish uh, we could have traveled together just a week ago. Um, uh, claiming there's there's absolutely no evidence of ancient civilizations in America. Um, I just visited evidence of an ancient civilization in uh, northeastern Louisiana. It's a place called Poverty Point, and they uh, claim four or 5,000 uh, people of, they're not sure what descent, lived there and uh, had huge mound dwellings and, and lots of artifacts and things found. And, and archaeologists date it from about 1500 B.C. to maybe, you know, uh, right around the time of three or four hundred, or, or well, the civilization died out around five hundred BC. So, fifteen hundred BC to five hundred BC, and thousands of people were living there. That's one of literally thousands of places that, <clears throat> when um, th- this this person who's uh, sh- sharing his wisdom on all things of American antiquity here, uh, must not have heard this, and there's good reason why that. When Abraham Lincoln spoke to the Second Congress, um, when he was president, he was talking about the great opportunities that lay west of the Appalachian Mountains. And he said in his words to the Congress uh, that it was our opportunity to go discover this Egypt of the West. And, you know, so what did he mean by that term? Um, There were uh, various... Uh, people who had been uh, discovering well before America was established the fact that our land was covered with remnants of ancient American civilizations. Uh, This one in Poverty Point is only one. I I just came across an article recently where in Missouri alone, uh, over 37,000 mounds, sites, artifact locations have been identified over time where ancient cultures lived well before Columbus. And that's just in one state. The majority of them are in your home state, actually, Mike, uh, Ohio. Yeah, how, Did you ever come across that in your in your uh, time there? We visited some uh, last year. Um, some huge mound uh, areas. Um, and to be honest, I forgot the name of it. It was about an hour or so outside of Columbus, um, not too far from where I grew up. Uh, we just Googled it and went and looked at it, um, and that's one of many. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you go to so many landmarks and, and you find these great visitor centers, and, uh, you know, you can go not far from uh, Independence and go to Fort Osage and there's a beautiful, you know, visitor center there and a building there. And yet you go to these mounds, which were just, when you think about how many, uh, they said millions and millions of basketfuls of dirt would have had to been used to even make one of these walls. And they Mm -hmm. were, they were huge and they went on forever. And you think about how could people have done that 
and yet there's no big visitor center. There's just a little tiny building there, and there's, you know, one guy standing there, and uh, there's just no fanfare other than a little sign out front. And that's kind of seems to be, for the most part, the way they are. If you can even find them with Google, it helps. But uh, we just we just built up our own uh, lifestyle over all of these things. And uh, I'm sure God knew that was going to happen, and it happened for a reason. But to say nothing is here um, is just uh, silly. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, uh, maybe we'll get into this today, but um, doing some reading recently and uh, some books on the American antiquities, and they're out there. Um, lots of history was recorded before the 1800s about these ancient civilizations, before there was an agenda. And I say agenda, and I think we talked about this in a recent episode, but it's it's kind of worth repeating. Um, in the in the early 1800s, there was a tremendous talk, but this even goes back to the 1600s, even, even be, you know, uh, Plymouth Rock and Pilgrim times when uh, explorers and different people were finding out lots of facts about the Native American culture here all throughout the eastern, northern part of the United States at the time. And they were remarking how similar everyone was to the Jews, how people who were learning the Indian traditions, Native American traditions, were finding that um, so many similarities in just the nuance of their language to Hebrew and things. And so, um, you know, contrary to our friend who was ever speaking uh, against the Book of Mormon, um, you know, lots of evidence of, of metal work. And even they found skeletons that had exactly as the Book of Mormon said, uh, even like head shields and things in their in their burial positions. Uh, there's pictures of that in these books. And so what happened, though, uh, by 1948, they say that over 90% of the evidence of mounds and things like this were um, totally just plowed under in our expansion. And there was uh, a lot of evidence that the curators of the Smithsonian in the middle 1800s, this is the time when the Book of Mormon was really, you know, starting to spread in understanding. Uh, two guys um, uh, who, who were in charge of that at the time were... Um, one guy was a best friend of Charles Darwin and, and he was a evolutionist guy. And the other guy was a best friend of, uh, uh, Karl Marx. And, and in fact, Karl Marx even wanted to dedicate a book to one of these guys. So there was a socialist environmentalist or, or um, I'm sorry, um, uh, struggling for the word. The, uh, <clears throat> well, they wanted no connection with American history and religion. And, and here's the reason why people were starting to put two and two together that the American Indians had to be the remnant of Israel and maybe other cultures too, but there was lots of evidence that they had Hebrew connections. The very first book that was ever published, the very first publication um, that was put out by the Smithsonian, this is before these guys were in charge, was uh, two guys named Squire and Davis who wrote a very thick book. I've got a copy of it. It was all about the dwellings along the Mississippi Valley. And they they literally went and visited and hand-drew hundreds and hundreds of sites along the Mississippi, the Ohio, Missouri Valley rivers, because that's where most of these existed. And what they found was just amazing. They start measuring these angles of some of these monuments, and they say, these match the same angles as the Egyptian pyramids. You know, they were making these connections. Um, this place I just visited last week in uh, Louisiana. You mentioned the, the dirt, Mike. Um, if they carried it by hand, they said it was over 15 million 
would have been 15 million basketfuls of dirt over time. You can imagine if they did it by hand or somehow maybe they employed animals. I, I don't know. But they said the, the footprint of some of these, like, for instance, I believe it's in uh, Cahokia, Illinois, right outside of St. Louis. The mounds there, they say the footprint of the single large, which is a pyramid with its top truncated off, the, the base of the pyramid is actually um, is, there's there's more dirt in that than there is stone in the Egyptian pyramids in Giza. Giza. Who mm. talks about this in our who talks about this in our history classes anymore? No, we've been taught to believe that America's history started with Columbus, and this is this guy's fallen right into that trap. But so what happened is after these guys published this publication, it, it started raising all this controversy because people were going to have to say uh, in America that okay, maybe we shouldn't be taking the lands of these people. That was one issue. And and then when you go, you know, massacre them and then put them in your own schools and say you're doing this in the name of Jesus and, and you're killing the people to do it and you're forcing them to march. Um, for, for instance, uh, you know, Indians who live in Oklahoma right now, the Choctaw Indians, Oklahoma wasn't their home. They were from Mississippi. They were made to walk all the way to Oklahoma. And they said, here, have some dusty ground here and you can live here. Um these people remember all this, but that's maybe another another subject. But the point is, America was covered. The, the Egypt of the West was what they were calling it. But there was an agenda that we couldn't accept this notion that these people were of some religious or prophetic descent because that would fly in the face of the evolutionist Marxist ideas. It is exactly after the Book of Mormon came out that the— um, Smithsonian put forth, this is where the idea originated, that all of a sudden all the Americans, uh, Native Americans, uh, anywhere in the North America or Central America had come across the Bering Strait. And there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that. There's over 500 languages, in fact, they've discovered. You can't get that if it was just one people who, who started. But they, they've held to this, and it's been printed in our books because what they realized, and, and here, <clears throat> here's the shameful part of it, is they realized something back in the 1800s. You can call science, you know, um, just uh, without emotion. It's all about fact. It, it's not religious. It's not this. It's unbiased. It's just the facts. But they realized that if you do something in the name of science, you can shape political and social agendas. And that was the ultimate goal of this is because they did not want any connection with any of the history here. So suddenly it was erased out of our history. The American Indian became the first group of people anywhere in the world that suddenly didn't have a history. Didn't have a history. And, and, uh, and he said there was no uh, connection with the Native Americans. Um, and yet, you know, as we talked about episodes before, uh, explorer here who who you know greets a group of people and they greet him uh, by saying the Shema or the, the prayer in Deuteronomy, uh, and speaking Hebrew, and a definite connection um, because you, you might want to turn it around and say, why, if Joseph Smith was going to write a book, why in the world would he say that there's people here who are from the Hebrew culture? Exactly. I mean, that would, you know, how could you even think that you would back that up? Um, you know, even in, in 1650, this book was published, and the title was Jews in America or the Probability that Americans are of that race. And that's... That was the, that was what was going back to England and to Europe is that hey we've discovered the lost tribes, and and it's interesting today that 
when uh, I was just studying some more on Hebrew poetry and came across this little nuance of the language where then they they come back and they say, yeah, you don't see this much in any modern languages at all anymore, but you can still find it in the Hopi Indian language, for instance, you know, and you find these subtleties that people are, you know, maybe they scratch their head when they just hear something isolated like that. But the preponderance of evidence is huge. It's just huge out there. So interesting, the word Mexico, you, you know what the original word for Mexico was? How you even get that name? <clears throat> it was the Indian name for, it was their word in that part of the region of North America and Central America when they found the natives living there. And this is before the Spaniards had basically wiped them out. What we call Mexico was their word, and I probably won't quite pronounce it correctly, but it was Mexico which was their word for Messiah. Mm. That is what the word Mexico means. And the, the people named the country after the Messiah. Mm. That, and this is what these discoverers back in the 16 and 1700s were reporting. You know, this isn't something that came after Joseph Smith mm-hmm. or anything like that. And, and so what's interesting is, so this uh, one person who writes this book in the 1600s talks about the fact that alive in that day before all these uh, Indians were you know, killed off and, and, and whatnot. Um, they, they remembered a lot more of where they came from. And many of the people in the southern part of the United States, like the Mississippi uh, Delta area, they all claimed that their forefathers came from Mexico and that they had all moved up from the south and the ones who were alive in that time. But they all acknowledged there was a group of people who lived there before them. Mm-hmm. And and so this totally corroborates with the Book of Mormon, you know. That's uh, well. Let me let's play. Uh, let me play one more clip before we get into what we were talking about today, because I just and I, I I barely listened to this, but uh, I just wanted to bring something up because of what the nature of what we were talking. You know, Mildred Smith. Uh, I don't know if I said this on air or not. Maybe I did. If not, if I did, it's worth repeating. When Adam and I, my friend, were going through some kind of some missionary training, uh, Mildred Smith told us very, one of the things that was the most important thing I took out of all of that, and she really wanted us to take this to heart. She said, she said, boys, if you don't learn to love the truth, you'll always believe a lie. Mm. And you think, well, that sounds so, so simple and so uh, plain and obvious, but I, if you really think about that in your heart, how much do I love the truth and how elusive is the truth? Mm-hmm. The truth, um, to love the truth means that you have to set aside a lot of personal pride and personal arrogance and you have to have a, a heart of humility that just wants to know what God wants you to know, that wants to know God as he is mm. and everything about him as it is. And to empty yourself of all pride in that, that's that's a lifelong commitment. So just to say I love the truth and I want to know truth is, is, is kind of like saying I want to be perfect. And uh, you, you can desire that, but, but to truly desire it takes a lifetime. Because once we all truly desire truth, there's no more problem. Yeah, it's just the pride that wants to hold on to uh, little lies and little deceptions, and so we have to. It's a process, um, and so anyway, 
there's so many lies out there. There's so many things that aren't truth. So let's let's listen to one more thing and then get into uh, what we were going to talk about today uh, with uh, with Joseph and some of the translation of the Book of Mormon. So let me let me cue this up. The third major problem with the Book of Mormon is that we really can't trust the man who translated this book. Uh, Joseph Smith was not exactly the most trustworthy fellow, and we've seen examples today, if you look at various cults and groups around the world, that there are people that will lie. There are people that will lie about being messengers from God, and they will lie about messages that they have received from God. And so we have to ask the question, is Joseph Smith somebody that seems to be reliable? Does he seem like the kind of person that is telling the truth about his own experiences? And we just don't see that throughout his life. Uh, Joseph Smith was a treasure hunter. He's the kind of person person who really liked telling tall tales. His mother speaks about this. And Joseph Smith changed his mind about a number of things throughout his life, things that might be pretty important. Uh, so what's known as the first vision is a time where Joseph Smith first encounters some kind of messenger of God while he is praying and asking God uh, where he should go, what religion he should be a part of. And this first vision was a really important turning point in Joseph Smith's life, according to his own testimony. Well, the problem is we don't have any evidence of the first vision actually having happened. It's a very long time before he actually starts even writing about the first vision at all. And when he does, he speaks of it in totally contradictory ways. At first, he speaks about a messenger appearing to him. Then he speaks about uh, Jesus Christ appearing to him. Another time, he speaks about two messengers, seemingly God the Father and God the Son, both speaking to him at this time. Now, it's really common to mix up your memories. For example, one time he says he was 15, one he says he was 16. Those kinds of details we can definitely forgive. We kind of mess things up sometimes. We don't have perfect memories. But when our memories are the best, and you can see psychology I've proven this. Our memories are the best when it's some kind of significant event that impacts our lives. And those are the memories that are going to be the clearest to us and that we're going to remember the most details. And what would be more significant than God the Father and God the Son coming to you and speaking to you personally? And if Joseph Smith can't even remember those details right, it does lead us to question, is this really the kind of guy that we want to trust? We also see that he is not exactly the most honest person and that he lies to his wife, Emma, as he has taken another wife. And it was quite some time before she even found out that he had taken another wife. And when he was practicing polygamy, he denied it several times. Uh, and we see a pattern of, of dishonesty, and we see a pattern of inconsistency in Joseph Smith's testimony. So we can't really trust Joseph Smith as the kind of person that would be honest about something like this. Corey, I uh, um, just thought we'd play a little bit about, uh, you know, it's it's kind of crazy the standards that uh, Joseph is held to, and and you know, is is he somebody we could trust? You know, let's yeah. is was Adam somebody we could trust? You know, <laughs> exactly. boy, his first two sons, he couldn't even keep them in line. One killed the other, and um, yeah, you sure uh, can't trust David either. I mean, he he wrote most of the Psalms, but you know his history. He he had someone killed, and then uh, you know took his wife and did other things that were unspeakable. And it's kind of like, and and he's supposed to be the one who was so um, so noted that. It was through his lineage Jesus would be born, but you know how can you trust this guy, right? Yeah, Noah. Uh, you know, as soon as he was uh, wasn't even he was supposed to be the most righteous, and and eight souls saved on the ark. And as soon as the ark son, <laughs> as soon as the story, you know, after the flood, next thing you know, he's drunk and doing all kinds of weird, you know, some weird things happen. And it's like, well, if he was the righteous one and he was saved, how can? <laughs> 
How can he be doing that kind of thing? It's, it's, yeah, you see this kind of stuff all the time. And, you know, what's interesting is we always honor Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here Abraham had two wives. You know, he had a had children with a slave and his wife. And then Jacob had four wives. And it's like no one seems to hold any of those people to that standard. And But here's the thing I, I will say is, like, most people, when they try to impugn the Book of Mormon, instantly try to associate everything with the character of Joseph Smith. And you know what? I'm I'm here to say, uh, you can say whatever you want about Joseph Smith because I feel like the word of the Book of Mormon stands on its own. And if you judge him, you know, because he lived closer to our time and people know more of the day-to-day events of his life, if you knew the day-to-day events of the lives of all the people in the Bible, you probably would not want to read it. I mean, it, what's, what I think is probably true, although we only have a little bit of the story, Isaiah describes in some of the most beautiful prose descriptions from the Old Testament of Jesus to come. But the story starts out with him saying, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a place where we don't speak well. It's kind of like he's not only saying, God, why are you calling on me? But he said, I'm I'm like the low life here. So if we had hung out in his town and if this guy swore like a sailor, you know, for instance, nothing against sailors. Uh, but the, the whole point is if you knew him, you wouldn't have liked him. And, and that's the same. And then later this guy's told, Oh, by the way, um, take off your clothes and you're going to walk around naked for three years. And, and so he did, and I'm sure no one wanted him to serve communion at their church during that time. <laughs> but the whole thing was they all thought he was nutty, but he was only, honoring what God told him. And he did that as a sign to show that the Hebrews, the Jews were going to be so persecuted that when they marched to Egypt, they were going to be naked doing it. That's how bad it was going to be. But all these personal details of everyone's life, you wouldn't have liked any of them. And that's why I kind of like, I really enjoyed last episode. And um, I think as a people, we need to realize that don't allow people to take discussion in an area that's not even worthy of giving our time to. Uh, We see today in the news how easily it is, as our president said uh, not too long ago, uh, someone said, well, you didn't do anything wrong. He said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is what people perceive. Now, whether he did anything wrong or not, I'm not debating that, but mm-hmm. what, but but the comment that it doesn't matter. What matters is how people perceive it. That is a truth, and just with all of our sources of information today, we see how truth is so elusive. Just imagine back then when there wasn't recording mechanisms and it was, you know, being written down and and people oral tradition telling so and so. Let's look at the evidence of what was left. And that's why last week's episode and today we're looking at the Book of Mormon just from a perspective, Corey, of some things that you've seen recently. Uh, one of you said there was a church historian, even in our own church, kind of poking fun at Joseph. And, uh, you know, they said, well, he just copied a bunch of the King James Version, you know, the King James Isaiah into the Book of Mormon to make his story. What do you know about that? Well, hey, uh, this is something I'm I'm just currently just kind of really, really immersing myself into. And what what I've done is taken and made a spreadsheet to start of every verse of the King James Bible and compare it with every verse of the Inspired Version for one. But that's not really my interest. I'm trying to take every verse of the 
uh, Book of Mormon where Isaiah is quoted and compare that back to the King James? What would have one of certain versions that would have been available to Joseph Smith? Well, in his day. Well, so the naysayers, just like this guy on this recording, will throw things out. And, and it. I know it causes pain for us when we believe in the Book of Mormon. Then we hear these things. We don't know how to defend them. And one of the things they'll throw out is like, oh, well, Joseph Smith just needed some filler material. So he just plagiarized, that's the word they'll use, the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, the, or rather the King James Isaiah text into the Book of Mormon. And they just say, he just copied it word for word. Well, so what I thought, well, I wonder if that's true. And so I started comparing verse by verse and using a little computer magic, have it just sort of analyze word for word. And I, I'm not prepared enough to actually give an estimate, but my my gut feel so far, because I'm not completely through this, is um, 70 or 80% of the verses from Isaiah are diff- in the Book of Mormon are different than the equivalent text in the King James. And the, what's interesting to me is I, I'm learning this at the same time. I'm just starting to expose myself to understanding what Hebrew poetry is all about. Hebrew poetry isn't rhyming words uh, and that kind of stuff like we think of poetry. Hebrew poetry was where they would express words and ideas, and, and the ideas rhyme rather than the words, and they use a parallel form to do this, of, of sharing their ideas in a parallel thought. We talked about that some last time. Well, so what I'm finding is that when you read the Book of Mormon Isaiah verses and compare them back to what would have been in the King James, you find that the sometimes it's a word or two or sometimes it's a phrase that's different. And when you read what the Book of Mormon says and compare it back to the King James, you find that the Book of Mormon has a better Hebrew poetic structure than what was in the King James verse by verse when you compare them. And, and in fact, what um, there's, an, there's another verse, and I'm going to read this one to you right now. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to give you the quiz here, Mike, and you can't read this, but I just want to read it and see if you can hear a difference. This is the King James, Isaiah 2, 16, and it says, And upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures... Okay, that's that's the first verse. Now, the equivalent verse in the Book of Mormon RLDS version comes from the second book of Nephi, chapter 8, verse 32. So King James says, And upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. Now, here's the Book of Mormon. And upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures. Mm-hmm. I, here, here it's a little different. Yeah. All right. You, so did you detect any part of it that might sound different? And upon, and <clears throat> upon, and upon. Yeah, there's an upon. In the very first and upon, in the Book of Mormon, it includes this text that says, and upon all the ships of the sea. That phrase is missing in the King James, but it's in the Book of Mormon. Well, get this. Uh, outside side of the King James Version, there are other texts that have Isaiah, and this uh, Masoretic text was a copy of the Hebrew, uh, certain Old Testament works, and it included some of Isaiah, and it was uh, one of the earliest 
copies of Isaiah. No, not as early as the Book of Mormon, but in the Masoretic text, it also includes this phrase, and upon all the ships of the sea, which the Book of Mormon has, but the King James does not, which means this. Nephi was writing from an older copy of Isaiah that he had in his possession from the brass plates, which also had the same phrase in a later copy found somewhere else that they call the Masoretic Text. And the Septuagint, these 70 people who kind of uh, collected all these scriptures, they included it in that version. It's in that version. So you can go online, read the Masoretic Text, find uh, Isaiah 2.16, and you're going to see this upon all the ships of the sea, which matches the Book of Mormon. But it is not even in the King James. So how do you get that? How did he just happen to guess this? Oh, yeah, I'm going to include and upon all the ships of the sea and just find out that, lo and behold, it matches an ancient text that was found later, right? How do you get that? Yes, that's <laughs> that's crazy. So when people are like, well, how do we trust Joseph Smith? And Well, you don't, but you look at the book, the, you look at the book and the evidence of the fruit of the work and say, do I trust that this is real or was a young boy, whether you want to say you're 15 or 16, making this up. And he, he knew how to put in a certain phrase. Yeah. He just guessed that one. Right. It was another, I don't remember if it was last episode, you talked about that type of poetry where instead of saying an upon and then listing three things, but instead it says and upon the, and upon the, and upon the, which was a, a different way of yep, writing. Yep. Yep. It, it's, it's just part of the evidence of the Hebrew grammar where they would um, connect, you know, nouns and verbs and pronouns and things together because that was the rule. If they didn't do it in their speech, it would sound funny to them. Just like if you left certain verbs and subjects out of our sentences, it would sound funny to us. Like, Oh, you're not speaking English correctly. Well, What's interesting is that most of the time, I believe, when uh, people would criticize Joseph Smith as being, you know, the dumb hick uh, who couldn't spell Jerusalem, like I think we shared that, um, you know, that that was actually a good thing because it just proved who God was working with. But in the Book of Mormon, most of these situations where you get like a, a plural and a singular noun and verb that don't match right, and then they would just scratch their head at that, that's actually really good Hebrew. I was spending some time today actually studying that. And plural and singulars uh, were used often in their language and, and for that reason, because sometimes they would, for instance, if you look in the Book of Mormon, you'll see this phrase where it refers to God who created the heaven and the earth and the seas, all three. And then it says, in all things in them is and it's, it doesn't make sense because we'd say, and all, all these things or all these things that they are, right? Because there's a plural and we would use the are rather than is. It sounds weird. Well, that all things in them is, is how the Hebrews would attribute the singularity to his entire creation. They didn't, when they talked of, remember the story of uh, the creation in, in Genesis, God creates the heaven and the earth, but then he talks about the water that separates the the firmament from above, from below, and all this. Well, that idea of water and sea, when we say seas, we're just thinking ocean. They considered this water in the heavens and water in the earth all connected, and the seas flowed. And what was heaven and earth and sea was the entirety of everything God created. And this was one thing. 
It was, we saw it as parts, but it was one. And that's why it says all things in them is. It was like this, this is one, right? This is singular. But they wrote it that way to emphasize the the majesty and the greatness of everything, which you couldn't describe it any other way. So you just, this thing that is, and that's how it was described. So again, it's, it's like, you know, people say, oh, Joseph Smith couldn't speak well, you know? No, this was how it was done in the Hebrew. <laughs> that's a, that's. That's good stuff there. I, I also heard the Hebrew uh, adding an S is, is simply to uh, not make uh, like there's like the heavens doesn't mean there's many heavens. Exactly. But that that was how they would add added emphasis to it uh, just to um, greatness by adding that kind of context. Uh, the, the term, in fact, I just came across this today, Mike, uh, what you just said about heavens, because people started saying, well, maybe there's multiple heavens. You know, people in English reading these words, and they said, no, exactly as you said. What, was, what it was called in the Hebrew grammar was called a plural intensive and that's the term. There's actually a term for it, and it's used throughout the Scripture. It's the same as Elohim. Elohim means gods, plural. Mm-hmm. And so this is where, unfortunately, some people who believe in the Book of Mormon have taken you know, ideas too far and thinking, well, Adam was God, and God became you know, this and that, the other, and Adam became God, and now we all get these worlds. None of that is in the Book of Mormon, and it's, it's a false understanding based on something that the Hebrews did to emphasize what you just said. God is so big, this you can't contain it in the word God. Mm-hmm. You call it gods right. because it's it's and, and in a way there's a there's another thing that we do in English um, that was done in the olden days and and there's another term for it. It was um, oh I, I, it's slipping me right now, but I was just reading about it today. But you know how if you were uh, in the Queen of England's presence and you you know made a joke and I, I made a dumb joke and she didn't laugh. Well, well the Queen might say to me you know about my joke. We are not amused, you know. <laughs> and she's she's speaking of herself, but she's kind of implying that it represents her host and her everything and her dominion. We are not amused. Well, that was also done in the sense when people would refer to God and the hosts of heaven and the heavens of heavens. It was all this collective, okay, it's all this, the we thing was just him. And so what's what's interesting is um, I was reading a book today that was written in the, in 1200 uh, AD and and it was all about uh, they're, they're beautiful understandings that I think it would have matched the doctrine of the Book of Mormon very very well um, but it was this understanding that all these references like you say to gods and heavens and all this stuff was just the Hebrew um, expression that we don't get in our language that's uh... <laughs> Oh, I love I love hearing this stuff. What else? What else do you got for us? Anything else along those those lines? Or well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out on the internet when I get it done. That okay. The stuff on Isaiah. There's so much, but the the one thing about this that um, I mean, there's there's so much here. It's it's one of these things I find that it's actually easier to see it and right. read it than sometimes well, describe just to repeat it. Repeat what you said earlier that you know he copied the. You know, and I know you're estimating, but even at even seventy percent, you know, even two thirds to be different. Mm-hmm. Why would you purposely, uh, you know, go through there and just change a little bit or add a little bit? Uh, I mean, if you're going to copy it, copy it. Yeah. But yeah. but but to go through the work of trying to change it, 
I mean, you didn't change it enough to try to act like you were doing it. You were representing it as the words of Isaiah. So it wasn't that, I mean, you were, you were saying that the story was these plates were a copy of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So that was, you weren't trying to, uh, you know, to hoodwink anybody and make them think you're making it up. But, no, and but why change? Why go through and, and make 70% of it different? And then we find out these things later. So do you trust Joseph Smith? No. You, do you trust the product that it's, uh, that it's genuine and unique and that there's wisdom and organization and purpose for all of these? That's what you, that's what you, you trust. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, we, we trust the fact that they say, well, you know, Moses, was this person who did all these things. But what's interesting is that this Septuagint, 70 people who kind of collected these writings and modified and edited to their understanding, we don't know a single name of one of those people. We don't know any, but but it all, everything we have through the Bible came through their hands, and then it came through other people's hands and other people's hands, and translations were retranslated. And so What's interesting is that it's the subtle differences when you start getting back into the fabric of, of Hebrewisms and poetry that you realize are, are, are the meaningful changes that exist. And some of them are subtle, but some of them aren't. Um, remind us, Mike, you told about uh, when, when the Bible talks about hearing and obeying. It wasn't just like when it says hearken and hear. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah. Um I believe there was no uh, Hebrew word for obey. The word was uh, hear. And so a lot of times you'll say, uh, you'll, you'll hear them say, um, hear the word of the Lord, or, or those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Yes, yes. You who have ears to hear, let them hear. What they're saying is, uh, you know, why tell somebody to hear something twice? Right, but it, it didn't mean that. It's like Corey, listen to my story. I'm going to tell you, listen. Right, right. That what they were saying is, uh, uh, obey, hearken and obey, because it's the same uh, word with different meanings. Those of you who uh, are able to uh, grasp what we're about ready to tell you, do it exactly. And so the word here didn't capture it, they would separate it. And so when they were talking about what you said, they would say, hearken in here, because hearken was to listen, but here mm-hmm. was to obey. Uh-huh. And those two two words captured that idea. Well, <clears throat> here's just for one more example. King James, Isaiah 48, 1 says, hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. What's interesting, and again, I didn't know this until you shared it with me, the difference between just hear and hearken oh here, but hearken in here. But if you go to 1 Nephi chapter 6, verse 8, in the Book of Mormon, it, it doesn't say, hear ye this, like the King James. It says, hearken and hear this, O house of Jacob. It puts it in the exact descriptive format that God did and said and, and the prophets said when they were saying what you just said, hey, listen up and obey. And that's the word. I just I wanted to make sure I remembered it right, so I just Google and and the word is actually the Shema. Shema which you talked about, and I'm just going to read this. And anybody can Google this, but the word translated "obey" in our Bibles is the Hebrew word Shema. Yes. Just as there is no Hebrew word meaning obey, there is also no English word for Shema. While this Hebrew verb translates as "hear." It means more than just hearing or listening. It means to hearken, to do. 
There you go. And so. and that's that's the interesting thing here because how did Joseph Smith he didn't have Google to know this, <laughs> but yet here it is. The difference in that verse is, and there are some other differences too, but just the fact that he it's hearkening here. Why if you were plagiarizing this, I mean, and you're writing this out with a fountain pen, you know, <laughs> why why would you take time to add in little words here and there? It's like if your interest is in plagiarizing, well just plagiarize the thing. But the changes he makes Make better Hebrew every time. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm happy that, you know, it doesn't matter really. God's work is God's story. It's just interesting to me that that I don't, I, we overlook so much. <laughs> just think about a 16-year-old boy. Think about a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. In today's world, they have a lot of technology things. But think about a 17-year-old boy <laughs> in rural America with very little schooling just think about that for a minute you know where (laughs) the light of day you're working most of the time and then at night if you want to read you have to light a a candle and you don't have a library of books and and they were a poor family poor family and we could spend all day sitting around talking about how he was a money chaser and a gold digger and you know what man if somebody came along and had an opportunity to make money for Joseph, well, why wouldn't he go? Yeah. Okay, gold, yeah, I'll go. exactly. But that's not that's not the point. The point is, here's this book, and we're pointing out these little uh, intricacies, and you got to ask yourself, how could he know that? Yeah. yeah. And so then, uh, I, I guess you could go down the road. Well, it was demonic, or it was from an evil spirit, and then so you have to look at the words contained therein and say, what kind of house divided against itself can stand? Why, why would uh, such truth and such things about the nature of God be in there? You know, I I feel bad because when Joseph Smith is <clears throat> scrutinized or vilified, you know, he's treated like he was some. Uh, Hebrew scholar of the day and that he had been seminary trained and he was he was this masterful creator of of evil twisted words and deceived people and all this and it's like I just like just let the word stand on itself you know I'm I'm really interested now in reading all the things that the naysayers have to say about the Book of Mormon because I'm just finding that they're making the job easier of finding all the proof of its truth because they'll they'll have a whole website page of look at the bad grammar this dumb cluck you know put into this uh, this text called the Book of Mormon and then when you find the bad grammar and start searching an example of it in these profoundly deep Hebrew poetic uh, um, journals. And that have been studied and and reviewed around the world, you find the same example of that grammar when it's translated into English from the ancient Hebrew. And it's like, so yeah, it makes my job a little easier when I'm researching this stuff. But I just feel like, again, um, you know, to anyone out there listening, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't fall into the trap when you hear these people piling on all these different uh, ideas like this guy just saying, and there's no evidence out here. And we we know that Joseph Smith was an evil guy and all this stuff is kind of like, you know what? If you don't love the truth, you'll always believe a lie. Exactly. If you don't have a love for the truth. And, and like we said, we're not born with that love for the truth. Matter of fact, as we grow into this sinful world, everything 
uh, in our nature wants to believe a lie because loving truth is is equated to having the love of Christ within you. Mm. It's, it's it's equated with that big change of heart, and so it's not something that happens overnight. But um, I, I wanted to read the wording for this uh, that was all over the internet today, and it says whatever what all non Christian cults have in common. And here's a picture. It says Jesus Christ is the eternal Lord, God Jehovah in human flesh, and then there's a picture of of an anti ripping that up. Like in other words, saying we're going to take that definition of Christ away. And what does, what does, and again, if you attribute that to uh, different followers of the book of Mormon and what they've perverted about the nature of God, Mm -hmm. well, I can see where they're, um, where they're, uh, they have a point, but when you take the book of Mormon and what does it teach? Jesus Christ is God, the eternal God. And that he came down and took upon himself flesh and blood and died on a cross that we might be saved. Amen. And that's that's it. That's it. What a beautiful product. <clears throat> you so. know, you mentioned that change of heart, Mike, and I was thinking today, and I, because I know we've used this term before, but I was just thinking today. So you tell someone, okay, you have to have a change of heart, but what does that really mean? And mm-hmm. and I remember hearing a sermon not long ago at, at your congregation, in fact, and someone said something that stuck with me for well over a year now. And he he put it in these terms. He said, he came to a point in his life where he said, you know what? I just wanted to love the things that Jesus loves. And I wanted to hate, I mean, using that word in in context, hate the things that Jesus hates. And, Mm -hmm. and, 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 And that, when that rings true in our lives, it's like, Lord, I just want the things that you want. That's what the change means. And then the result is the fruit of your life. And are we going to do it perfectly? No. But when we have that passion, when we come to that point in our lives where we honestly confront God and say, Lord, just please make this a reality in my life. Let me know truth. Let me live in the truth, whether or not anyone else around me does or not. Let me have strength to do this and and live the way you want me to live. Well, you know, brother, we've talked through this episode a lot about truth and and a little bit about not listening to the lies that people have said about Joseph, but to look at the product. And um, I know you had some things on Isaiah. We're getting towards the end of this. Was there anything else that, um, Corey, you wanted to add about um, some of the things you found while searching Isaiah? Yeah, and the the search is just going on and on and on. And and uh, But I want to share one thing. Um, so I was teaching a Sunday school class recently, and after the class, someone came up and said, uh, and this happens a lot, you know, people say, oh, I wanted to ask a question, but I didn't want to take the time or I didn't want to interrupt your thoughts, or whatever. And and so um, a friend, a woman asked this really good question about Isaiah. And she said, so you're talking about how these subtle differences between the Book of Mormon and the King James verses of Isaiah, where, again, <clears throat> the naysayers say, Joseph Smith just copied Isaiah word for word out of the King James and put it in the Book of Mormon. Well, that's patently untrue. And so it's, even though sometimes it's just a verse or, I mean, a couple words in a verse that are different, the differences are, are pretty significant because you see this poetic structure coming out. But then she said, but what about Isaiah 29? And if, you know, you read the Book of Mormon or the inspired version, you know, it's it's vastly different. There are many verses that are contained in Isaiah 29 and that aren't in the King James, mm-hmm. and they're in our inspired version. And and she, and I the reason I wish she'd asked this is because 
It's a question I've had, and I'm just going to offer this as my opinion. I, I don't want to state it for a fact, but I've been kind of pondering this and praying about this same question. I thought, Lord, why would that be so different? Well, this is what I'm becoming aware of as I've just been comparing Isaiah and the Book of Mormon verses, is that when Isaiah is written in the Book of Mormon, uh, it's primarily Nephi who includes the words, but Jesus quotes a lot from him too in the third book of Nephi. But in the first couple books of Nephi, where you get the most of the text of Isaiah, what happens is now and then Isaiah will say, hey, and then now let's hear from Isaiah who's going to explain about the Jews falling away and the Gentiles and all these things. And then he'll quote sometimes several chapters in a row. Um, but now and then, and he tells you he's going to do that, but now and then Nephi is speaking in his own words, mm. and then he'll he'll come back to a verse of Isaiah, and he won't even say I'm quoting Isaiah. He'll just quote Isaiah, and then he'll continue to expound on that. And and I'm realizing he's done that often in his in his writings because it so spoke to the things that were on his heart, the things that were God was showing him, the same things Isaiah saw. Nephi starting to understand. Well, <clears throat> so what does this have to do with Isaiah 29 being differently? What what I'm realizing too is that when you start reading these verse by verse, you you can hear the tone of Isaiah. And you hear the commentary tone of Nephi coming through, and it sounds like two different people. Well, and this is just my opinion, but it seems to me that what's included in Isaiah 29 in the inspired version, it came from the Book of Mormon. And, and that's clear. It came from the Book of Mormon. It wasn't just words Joseph uh, Smith felt inspired to include. But what I think is in the Book of Mormon is, again, some of Nephi's words, some of his uh, commentary, if you will, where he's talking about the sealed book and the people who can't read it and all these different things. And and those verses that make it seem like there's, you know, just kind of gaping holes in Isaiah in the King James that somehow got deleted out of the text the old day, I don't think that's what it was. I think what it was is Isaiah and Nephi's words were both contained together, and the there were a couple committees who eventually took all the notes of Joseph Smith and, and put these together in the uh, inspired version. I, I think it was basically they just took the text of the Book of Mormon and included it, but I don't think all that was necessarily Isaiah's words, and that's kind of the long way around of what I wanted to say about Isaiah 29. I think that what we did was we took some of Nephi's words and we called it all to Isaiah, and we put it back in Isaiah 29. And maybe that just makes it easier for people who are reading the Bible to then see the correlation. But I would have to say that I don't think now. I'm not saying that Nephi, or that rather Isaiah, didn't see this and understand it. But I'm just saying that as the text of Isaiah seems to appear in the old Aramaic or Hebrew format, it seems to me that. Uh, that we get some of Nephi's words and put back into the inspired version. That's my thought. I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard that before. That's a great, um, I mean, that's a very plausible explanation, uh, you know, and whether we, whether we know for sure or not, uh, you know, people pose all kinds of contradictions and arguments and, um, as to why the book can't be true. And they're, they're just, some of them are just downright silly, but um, but here's a very logical, very plain ex explanation or answer uh, to those things um, that could very easily be true. I so 
there's always two sides to everything and it's, do you want to love the truth or believe a lie? You know, the book of Mormon is the product. It's not the person, it's the product. And when boy, when we look at the fruit of what this young boy produced and we read it over and over again, it always blesses my soul. Mm -hmm. So, well, Hey, thank you for sharing that. That's a great place to end Corey. Um, I hope these things give people something to ponder on and and always to drive them back to the Word, the Word of God, because it is is truly powerful, and we need it in our lives so we don't get lost. So anything else, brother, you want to... uh, No, I just always feel bad when you get ready to push that exit music because I feel like we just want to keep talking and talking, but Uh we will continue next time, and we are just going to keep walking each other home. Sounds good to me. Until next time, God bless.